Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Scott Holsworth, chef, restaurateur and author and owner of Freak Scene in London. Coming up on today's show... Scott destroys the dreams of his children. One of my kids came to me and said they were going to do that at 25. I'd be like, you're mad, there's no way. Phil talks about his own culinary capability. And take great pride in, in producing food for my uh, mates and things like that, that that looks great. But does it always taste great? No. And Scott reveals his philosophy for life. Just as much rock and roll as food, I suppose. All that and a whole lot more as Scott talks us through his story and journey to date. As we continue to tackle lockdown, the chat was recorded virtually, so please forgive any minor drops in audio. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Scott Holsworth, uh, who is the chef and founder of Freak Scene in Soho in London, also an author. And I'll come on to that in a second, actually, because um, I've got a little bit of a story behind that myself. Uh, and just generally all round nice guy. Um, I've been lucky enough to eat in, in Freak Scene. Uh, your food is exceptional. And uh, well, Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Pleasure. Um, yeah, my little story around your book. You um, you may or may not remember this because I know you, you, you have a lot of people through your door. But um, you very kindly gave me a copy of your uh, your cookbook, uh, Junk Food Japan. And wrote uh, a little note in the front of it, which um, I think just kind of sums up your character, to be honest. You're just a really uh, humble guy. It said, um, Phil, uh, thanks. Uh, here's the book or whatever. Uh, good luck with the recipes. None of them work. Um, <laughs> and I've always remembered that. I thought it was brilliant. But uh, just to let you know, they do work. Um, but nevertheless, the humor was um, was welcome on the day. Oh, that's good. I mean, uh, Bloomsbury and Absolute Press would be um, horrified um, to hear me say that, but obviously I'm joking. Um, they spent so much time yeah. uh, stress testing the recipes and making sure a home economist could um, uh, understand them easily enough because, as you know, your Japanese ingredients, they're not that common sometimes. So, uh, yeah, they, they'd be probably um, a little bit horrified. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's why I wanted to put in the caveat because um, uh, they abs- I, I've done, I think, maybe about 12 or 13 uh, of them yeah. so far and every one of them i mean it's just a, it's a cracking book people cool, should go out and buy it and that's not why we're here but anyway <laughs> um, great well um maybe you could kind of kick kick off the next section just by giving us a an overview of of who you are and and what you do uh, and we'll take it from there yeah thanks well um i started my cooking career um as an apprentice chef in i think it was 1991 in um, a place called Bunbury in Western Australia. I started working for a, a hotel group there um, uh, under an executive chef named Alain Duano, who'd just come over from Le Gavroche here in London. Um, and he'd, he'd wound up in this sleepy small city in Western Australia. Um, so I had a bit of a, a, a kind of French European um, apprenticeship uh, for the most part. Um, and then started started um, getting an interest in um, Southeast Asian flavors because that was b- becoming big all over, you know, in the in the supermarkets, home cooking restaurants um, in the early nineties in Australia. And I ended up going to Singapore um, with our hotel group to do an Australian food promotion over there, Australian produce promotion. Um, so I got this taste yeah. for Southeast Asian flavors, and I thought, God, this is incredible. And then they'd send their chefs over and work on our buffet in the, in the hotel um, to do a Singaporean food promotion once a year. And, 
that used to blow my mind. The food that come off the buffet at the end of the buffet when no one ate anymore, we were allowed to we were allowed to get into it for our staff meal, and that just used to blow me away. The the, the level of flavors and the the textures and all kinds of things, stuff I'd never seen as a kid growing up, and I suppose it's pretty right. commonplace now in Australia. But anyway, that sort of um, that. Uh, influenced me hugely, and I, I just started traveling um, as as a chef. I moved up to Perth, you know, our capital city in Western Australia, and worked for a while, and ended up in uh, Queensland on Hayman Island, um, this beautiful uh, resort there. And I was there for a year, working in one of the Oriental restaurants, actually, and and a daytime restaurant, which I'd never worked in in my my whole career. Six years at that stage, I had a day job, which was amazing. I was living on an island um, in the in the Whit Sunday Passage, um, you know, dream dream job, really. Um, yeah. And I decided to move to Canada and, and traveled across Canada and worked in uh, Toronto, um, got my first sort of sous chef role there uh, as a young chef. I thought I was a bit young for it at the time, but anyway, I jumped in and did it anyway. And um, uh, then from there, was I that, had a um, call from a mate. Was that a natural progression? Was it was it something that just kind of landed on your plate or did you go, go looking for a, a move to Canada? Uh, yeah, it was it was a cool thing to do for people at the time because everyone was um, Australians get uh, visas easily to Canada. There's that reciprocal visa program, much like here in the UK. Um, so yeah. if you're under under 30 or 28, I don't know what the age is, um, you get visas quite easily to go for two years, and you can work for a majority of that. I think. Anyway, um, right. everyone was doing it, and <laughs> I thought I'll do this as well. I'll give this a shot. Um, I intent initially intended to go for a ski season, but sort of rocked up in spring. Um, at the back end of a season, which wasn't much use. Um, still, I managed to do a little bit of snowboarding in, in, in Whistler, actually, um, before travelling across to Toronto, um, where I ended up staying for quite a while. But, yeah, uh, which, uh, excellent experience. Loved that completely. But um, a mate who I'd, I'd done a small food promotion while I was on Hayman Island, actually, in Taipei um, with a hotel group there. I was chosen to go over to Taipei and um, absolutely loved that. I was over there for a few weeks cooking, again, Australian produce that gets sent over there. We were just, you know, uh, doing a promotion based around that and um, made friends with the executive chef who is a Swiss guy who'd been in Australia working for Tony Bilson, a famous Australian chef, um, for quite some time. Anyway, he contacted me at one stage and said, I'm moving back to Switzerland. We're opening this new hotel. It's called Into the Hotel. It's in Zermatt. What do you think? Do you want to come across? Um, I, I need someone like you. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to quit things in Canada and fly across and, and, and go and live in Zermatt for a while. Uh, and I did. And right. uh, that was that was a great, great experience. There wasn't much Asian food going on, of course, which is what I was really into. But um, just the experience of being around, um, you, you know, being in those kitchens and having to having a baptism of fire, learning, learning having to learn kitchen German very quickly. Um, and especially as the yeah. sorcier. I was the saucier in two of the restaurants there, not at the same time, of course, but um, <laughs> having to cook the, all the protein and have the sauces ready for to be on the pass at the same time as the as the veg guy and whoever else um, was was near impossible in the beginning because um, I wasn't allowed to go over to the pass and look at the checks. It was this quite rigid um, structure, and I had right. to kind of guess what to put on. So I'd look over at the the pans of the entremetier, the veg guy. And see what he'd put on. If he'd put on some polenta, that means I had to put on a duck or something. <laughs> so eventually, I <laughs> I got 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 used to the lingo, and um, that was fine. Um, so I had a, had a great season there, um, and from there uh, I ended up moving. I was just back to Australia for a little while, but then I moved to Chamonix in France. Um, and I, one of my best mates from Australia was he'd been over there for a while. He'd met someone who wanted to fund a restaurant. And he calls me up one day and says, hey, uh, look, what do you think about opening a restaurant in Chamonix with us? You know, um, we're all going to be partners. It's going to be this great project. And um, 
there's this guy who's going to fund it. He's he doesn't want to work in it or anything. He's just made some money off the internet boom. And what do you think? And I said, wow, that's going to be that'd, that'd be a great thing to do. And him and I were probably fairly decent cooks at this stage, but knew nothing about business or even running the front of house of a restaurant. Um, so we just right. naively, at, you know, this is I'm about 25 years old at this age, <laughs> moving to France to open a restaurant. I mean, uh, the world's your oyster, eh? You can do anything. <laughs> you think you can? Yeah, it's unfair. Yeah. <laughs> One of my kids came to me and said they were going to do that at 25. I'd be like, "You're mad. There's no way." And I'd give it. I'd try and. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we went over there. I went over there and um, we, we stripped out this um, old Savoyard restaurant, which stunk of cheese. It had been a fondue restaurant and it was just ingrained in the smell of the wood panelling in the place. It was it was pretty funky. <laughs> so we had to rip all that panelling out. So we did a lot of the, you know, um, shop fit work ourselves and had mates right. come in after their stays on the hill. You know, we'd, we'd try and make mates with carpenters or, or electricians or whoever we could. Um, and after they'd finished, they were basically just you know, traveling ski bums, if, for want of a better expression. They'd and they'd rock up at night time to earn a few francs. It was, it was back then the currency, um, and then they'd go yeah. snowboarding all day. So um, and that yeah, so that's how we put the place back together. And we we opened this place. It was Pan Asian. I remember getting some criticism from the lovely French couple across the road. They had a stationery shop, I think, and they said, um, "What sort of dishes are you going to be making?" It's really unusual, and especially back then. I think it was two thousand. It might have been. Um, they were, they were, I don't think there were many Asian places, if any. There might have been a sort of generic Chinese restaurant in Chamonix, but there wasn't anything else really doing pan-Asian, if you like. And yeah. I said, oh, one of the dishes I want to do is I've, I've, I've seen these really great rabbits down down the road in uh, the metro store. I'm going to get them. I'm going to make a Thai green curry with rabbit. And they're like, they were horrified. They just looked at me stunned as if as if I'm taking one of their prized possessions and ruining it. And they said, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, why not? And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. Rabbits are for stewing. And I'm like, yeah, but a curry is kind of a stew in a way. You know, it's just different flavoring. The principle's about the same. The cooking method's, you know, more or less the same. And um, they, yeah. were, they were horrified. They're like, this this, this idea of yours or, or you guys is, isn't going to float uh, with us, you know. Anyway, we, we got the place open late, later than we expected. And uh we uh, we were full. It was it was great. It was a baptism of fire. We 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 were flying by the seat of our pants, exhausted, um, driving miles and miles to get Asian ingredients in a town. I don't even know where it was now. Bonville, I think it was called. There was a shop there, <laughs> and it, it it was just right. it, it was an incredibly great experience. But by the time the summertime came around, uh, I think we were exhausted, and of course the most people leave the town, and there's a bit of a peak during the summer uh, when the mountain bikers and the, and, the, and the walkers and climbers and all come to town, but it wasn't enough to sustain business as such. So we uh, we all sort of parted ways and I thought, well, I was too young to really be trying to run a restaurant. I mean, this is mental. What I need to do now is go to London where, you know, chefs really get their butts kicked and, and it's kind of like when I was a young apprentice in Australia, that was that was everyone's kind of mecca, if you like, as a young chef. It was You go to London and have your schooling, yep. your proper schooling there. So I thought... I'll have to escape France somehow because I had very little money <laughs> and I managed to do that. Um, I won't tell you that story. But I managed what, to get um, What age were you at this point? I think I was turning 25 or turning 26. It was around my birthday that I had to leave uh, Chamonix and uh, rock up in London. So I, I think I was turning 26 maybe. Uh, yeah, right. Was that kind of with the, the turn, I suppose, of London kind of beginning to really – uh, I suppose shine a light on the the, the global food scene because I, I mean it was it took a, a long time for London to get going but it definitely got there in the end. But would it have been about that time? 
Yeah, I think it was um probably 2001 at this stage. Yeah, it would have been. So, right. um, yeah, there was some there was some really um, vibrant um, things happening by the sound of it. I remember going to a, a recruitment company. I don't know who they, I can't remember who they were, but they were just off Oxford Street, and I didn't know London at all. All I had was a mountain bike and a backpack, um, the, right. um, and a, and a place well prepared set of stairs in Bayswater, which was great fun. Um, given that the the rest of the house were made up of Australians and Kiwis and South Africans who just partied all night long and. I, yeah. I, I, not that I wouldn't want to have a beer with anyone at that age, but I was also trying to get a job. And it was yeah, I wasn't getting much sleep, but um, consequently because of the noise. But anyway, I, I um, went to this recruiter and they hooked me up with an interview um, and trial at Nobu in Park Lane. And uh, I'd heard of Nobu because I'd um, I'd been in New York for a quick stint um, um, when I was when I was over in Canada. Anyway. Um, so I rocked into to Nobu Park Lane on a Saturday lunch. They did, we didn't do lunches back then. It was uh, it was closed closed to do prep. Um, and I right. walked in the kitchen and there's blaring rock music going. It was the Cult. It was Wildflower by the Cult blaring in the kitchen. I thought this place is meant to be a Michelin starred restaurant. And um, what sort of discipline is that for chefs? They're blasting rock music. I mean, I'm a huge rock music fan, by the way, but I just couldn't. <laughs> I thought this is this surely isn't shouldn't be allowed. Anyway, they they were allowed music on Saturdays. Um, at that stage. Uh, and I, I met a, a guy who became a really good friend of mine, uh, Ben Cooper, who was a sous chef there at Junior Sioux, I think at the time. Um, and he sort of looked at me, he was much taller than me and looked down and he goes, are you here for the trial with his sort of you know, broad Aussie accent? And I went, yeah. And he just laughed at me with this kind of, you know, uh, you know, as if, uh, you know, watch out kind of grin uh, and, yeah. and giggle. It was, it was quite funny. Anyway, we did a load of prep. Um, we went down to the pub to play snooker and um, came back and did service. And I think we did like 450 covers. And I'm like, I've never done that many covers to that level of uh, that standard. I've never done that many covers flat out. Um, Jeez, yeah. I, I think I'm defeated here. This was just it's too much for me. You know, um, anyway, they gave us a job, gave me a job as a chef to party and I stayed on and, Worked my way up to become the head chef there, and um, I was that I was doing that for six years, and then I went out to Nobu uh, to open Nobu in Melbourne for a year or so. Right. And after seven years, oh, during that time, I wrote a book. Actually, um, most people don't, I wouldn't, wouldn't know this, know about this one, but I did it in conjunction with a Danish publisher and Danish photographer, um, and I called it the Japanese Foie Gras Project. Um, very niche market for that one. <laughs> yeah. I, I had heard about that actually. That just talk us through that. What what did that involve? Uh, well, after a time um, creating specials and things at Nobu, I had this kind of back catalogue of ideas, and and there was a load of foie gras ideas uh, based on Japanese technique and and flavours and and so on in there. Yeah. And I remember talking to a mate of mine, uh, the same mate from Chamonix, Mike. He um, he'd moved to Copenhagen by then, and I was telling him about all these ideas and what we've been doing with foie gras. And uh, he introduced me to this photographer friend of his, uh, Jakob Termanson, who's, uh, you know, look him up. He's got some beautiful photography out there, does some beautiful food photography, incredible stuff. Um, And Jakob said, hey, I think we can make a book out of this. What do you think? Have you got any more ideas? Because I had about 25. He said, you need about, you know, maybe you need about 40 or something. I said, oh, yeah, we could figure that out. And he went to his friend who was a publisher. And um, some, some, suddenly we started making this book uh, called The Japanese Foie Gras Project. And um, no, Nobu-san himself actually wrote the foreword for it. And um, there's a photo of a very young-looking me <laughs> and Nobu together in the, at the front of the book. So um, we, a bit of a weird subject to, to write on. Um, but uh, Rougie, Fran- uh, France's sort of largest foie gras 
exporter. They they bought I think like three thousand copies or something as a kind of uh, marketing tool because um, finally someone had put out something about foie gras that wasn't strictly European or French, and uh, they they thought that was quite useful. So yeah, I ended up doing a, a launch for it in, in Tokyo in conjunction with Rougie foie gras, uh, which was daunting right. to say the least. Going to Japan and cooking for Japanese Michelin starred chefs um, that was that was, yeah weird weird experience. <laughs> Of course, it was a. Um, it's a funny how the word the world changes. Of course, uh, back then it was a revered ingredient, wasn't it? But um, but nowadays it's um, less so. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of controversy about it. And I I um I don't eat meat at all anymore. But um, so I, right. I don't eat it at all. But um, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of bad press about it, and rightly so, uh, because there are some bad foie gras farmers, as as there are bad bad techniques used in other kinds of farming or, you know, rearing of poultry and so on. There's some disgusting habits happen, but they're, they're also yeah. good guys. You know, we spent some time on a farm in Perigord when we were shooting the book actually. And um, there's some, you know, some free range examples out there that are, that are excellent. So, you know, if you're going to eat um, foie gras and you're going to eat meat, you know, you can, you can, you can certainly find and seek out, you know, some, some products that have been reared correctly and nicely as best as possible, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, um, where are we up to? <laughs> uh, but, but so end of uh, oh, well, coming up to I suppose the end of of Nobu. Oh yeah, yeah. So after uh, about a year or so with Nobu Melbourne, I thought it was time for me to move on from the whole uh, Nobu world. It's a, it's a great world to be in, and I I certainly it influenced my my career forever, and uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved. It. I loved the food. I, can, I, I helped contribute to uh, one of the cookbooks and I got dishes on the menu and it was just a, it was a great time. And it was the early days of Nobu when I first joined them. So you know, the buzz and all the celebs that were coming in and, you know, we got to meet people like Michael Jackson and, and Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters and all the top chefs had come in and, you know, it was just rock and roll life for a while. But um, yeah, being a creative, you want to sort of get some recognition for yourself, I think. Um, and that's, that's, that's certainly what, how I felt in the end, you know, it wasn't, it was great that I got to contribute. It was really great. Um, we all we all got a chance to do that, but um, you know I, I want to sort of make a name for myself. At that. I wanted to make a name for myself at that stage, so I I, I left and uh, ended up going to work on an opening of a restaurant in Dubai, um, and I did my one year there. And uh, whilst that was yeah, it was good enough. It was fine. Uh, access to all the best equipment and food and plates and ingredients and so on. Um, it, it was it felt you know, like it wasn't quite right. Um, I think some people go there and they enjoy it and um, and do their time and move on, and that's what I did. So I uh, mm-hmm. came back to the UK at that stage and um, went into business with some guys who were in the airline industry uh, down in Horsham in West Sussex, and we opened a place called Wabby. Um, and on, after a couple of years, we opened a Wabby in London, and um, <laughs> that relationship fell apart in the end. It, was, it turned out that... Uh, you know, those chaps were possibly not as legitimate as I thought they were and um, right. a bit of a lesson in business. I had my first foray into the business aspect of restaurants. And um, so, but luckily, you know, I've been dreaming up this project in the back of my mind the whole time, just about um, whilst I was working on that, and uh, which we'd called Kurabuto, me and a couple of the other chefs there. Um, I put this idea together that there was there'd be we'd we'd create this thing that was a bit like Nobu, but it was more affordable and much more fun and rock and roll, a bit like an izakaya, but with you know uh, maybe slightly pimped up food. And um, right. 
we were going to call it Kurubuta. Anyway, we attracted the funding and all this, and uh, and that's that's what I, I went and did. I went and opened um, Kurubuta, and that that went off. And we had uh, three restaurants in London at one stage, and and a summertime seasonal restaurant with the Mandarin Oriental um, Hotel in Bodrum. We we call that Kurachan because um, I don't know if most people know, but Kurubuta means black pig in Japanese, and um, they. Right. And and the and the management at the resort in Bodrum in Turkey said, "There's no way in the world you're calling it Black Pig. That's uh, that's a no go here. <laughs> it's, it's a partly right. Muslim country." And um, of course, yeah. So we said, "Okay, well, we want it to tie in and look a little bit and sound a little bit like Kurubuta." So we called it Kurachan. Um, so we did that for three three seasons as well, and um, yeah, and wrote the the junk food Japan cookbook based on the Kurubuta aesthetic and the Kurubuta idea and. And recipes, um, which was fantastic. Um, and then, sadly, you know, um, a relationship between my partner and I, one of my business partners and I, broke down. And um, you know, this probably isn't the forum to go through, go through it all. Uh, but um, yeah, things didn't work out quite right. Um, and anyway, I was left with uh, no restaurant and no lifeline, and uh, not much, not much going on after Kurubuta sort of fell apart. And my partner and I, far she, who was also working for Kurubuta at the time, we devised this thing called Freak Scene. And yeah. uh, my dad was here at the time. I mean, we're sitting where I'm sitting right now. And my dad said, what, what, what do you want to call this thing, this little pop-up you're going to do? And I said, I want to call it Freak Scene. He said, that's terrible. Well, <laughs> I, I really, well, what do you mean by Freak Scene? <laughs> I said, oh, it's just the name of a song by Dinosaur Jr. And I explained who Dinosaur Jr. was were and um then and my and far even she said that's not a good name and i thought at that stage well this is the right name because you know it's it's slightly controversial and i and i pointed out to my dad who's a huge pink floyd fan i said uh you know they didn't really break boundaries pink floyd by um doing things that were safe they had to shock people in some way and that's and that's their creative genius i'm not saying that's what i am but um you know we have to break yeah. boundaries a little bit so let's call it freak scene and and still pop up and it's going to be pan asian this time with a few of my my kurabuda dishes so we found a little place and um dad funded it and we set up shop in farringdon in cowcross street there was a little retail food shop there um that had gone out of business and they were leasing the space out had a bit of equipment um but where we had to serve the food from didn't have any proper cooking equipment so i bought some camping stoves you know those little with the little gas cartridges that slot yeah in. <laughs> worked. I cooked on two of those and a, and a little tabletop deep fryer, like a domestic deep fryer. But downstairs, we had the, the right equipment to do things properly. We had a, a rationale oven so we could slow cook the pork belly and all that. We had walk-in coolers and blast chillers. It was, it was quite good. But to serve the food, I had to really improvise. And I have to say, when, when you really strip things back and go for it, uh, that, that was an incredible experience. I really, really enjoyed that um, basic experience of cooking on camp stove. Actually, we still cook on camp stoves now. So, um, right. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it works. Yeah. And then that's it. I mean, I suppose we just um, traded up to a bigger bigger site. We, we eventually um, pitched for the site, which was the original Barafina restaurant. For oh, They were there for around 10 years, I think, in Fifth Street in Soho. Um, yep. We managed to get that on a short-term basis because the building was um, scheduled to be redeveloped in a major way. So there were only short leases available. But we said, that's better than where we are now. And um, we have better audience and the rent's about the same. So let's, let's just go for it. And then partway through that period, the landlord said, hey, look, um, there's this Brexit thing going on and we're not going to inject any cash into the country 
because they're an American-based country uh, company. Wait, uh, wait, wait! Brexit? What? What's that? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, it's old news, <laughs> it's isn't it? Uh, discussion, is it, for the last uh, however long? Yeah, that that certainly um, went off the table. But um, so we got a longer lease on the site based on um, uh, the the landlord not wanting to invest any money into the UK. Um, whilst the Brexit negotiations were going on and so on, so right. yeah, we we've just been trading in Frith Street and um, and and uh, and loving it really. How long are you open now? Uh, it'll be coming up to two years. Um, about now, actually, yeah, I think it, it just about right. our two year anniversary in in Soho. About now, so that'd give us a total of about two and a half years with Freak Scene altogether with the pop up. Yep, got you. Okay, and then. Um... Any any further plans, or about, you may not be able to announce anything, but um, what what does the next little while have in store for you? I suppose I should put a caveat on that. We're we're talking currently in the middle of the the, the wonderful COVID nineteen situation, uh, which kind of puts everything on hold. But um, assuming we all get through the other side of that, um, what's uh, what's the plan? Well. Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Just before um, the lockdown, I was I was um, at the at a Russian tourist office, a tourist visa office. Sorry, uh, of course you were. To, I was I was just about to pay for the um, the visa, and the girl behind the counter said to me, "Hey, you know Moscow might go on lockdown for ten days." Uh, I said, "Oh, really? When's that?" She said, "Oh, but about the time you were there." I went, "Oh, well, I'm glad you told me." And then. Magically, I got this text from the person I was meeting in in Moscow. To we were talking about doing a collaboration with a bar operator in Moscow, so a freak scene kind of bar. And that was one of our next little steps. Um, and she sent me a text and said, "Hey, um, what do you think about delaying this? It sounds like the world's going on lockdown." And I went, "Yeah, it sounds like it. Let's uh, let's delay it then." And we had the flights booked and everything. But um, so and then the next thing, things progressed very quickly. And um, yeah, so that would have been one of the next things we were doing is looking at something in Moscow. Um, uh, and just seeing how that developed, but of, our, our intention was to always grow uh, freak scene um, uh, outside of London, um, possibly outside right. of the UK, uh, and in locations like that. We, we've got a great following, a strong following of Americans who come to freak scene, and, and Australians. They, 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 Americans and Australians seem to be really enthusiastic about freak scene. So we've always wanted to sort of, um, you know, push into other territories and see how we would fare up. Um, especially with London being such a tough market now and also a tough place to recruit, as you'd know. Um, yep. It's the same place it, it is. It was when I when I first came here. We, we, I remember having piles of CVs at Nobu and the CVs were all fantastic, uh, usually, usually really good um, at least. Yeah. Um, and now... And now, when you look for a you know a young chef, um, you got someone who with very little experience, um, and and you have to consider you have to consider them uh, for the roles, and it, it, they're not quite qualified, really, in in all honesty. Yeah. So, I thought you know we can't really build our empire here, it's, and not at this stage, not the way things are going. So yeah, we our, our dream, I suppose, was to always sort of look outside of the UK, um, and then we were working on a project in my hometown in Western Australia. Um, there's a large a state government fund um, to repurpose my hometown. My hometown's um, all been based around sort of power stations and coal mining, uh, where I come from. It's called Collie. Right. And um, actually, I started cooking in a Chinese restaurant there um, before my apprenticeship. I, my mum would send me down there so that I wouldn't spend all afternoon playing drums uh, with my makeshift garage band. He <laughs> 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 said, um, "Yeah, your, your brothers have gone off and done that, but you're not going to do that. You're gonna, you're gonna." Um, go and work in the Chinese 
on the Saturdays for free, by the way. <laughs> um, so yeah. it was a good thing, actually. I kind of enjoyed it, and I got free sweet and sour pork and fried rice, I mean, for my for my work. So, yeah. And then I'd go and play drums. Inspiration to, to move into the world of, of Asian cooking. Yeah, I always wonder if that was the first little thing that um, really did influence me. It probably it probably was. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we're looking at this project in Western Australia. The the government are going to repurpose the town because coal mining is going to die out in the next twenty years. Well, the power stations will um, won't be fit for purpose by that time, and they won't re they won't build any new ones because um, the world's going green, and um, they want to yeah. drive out down towards a tourist market. And I had a conversation with someone there, and I said, "Well, that's great, but you need to have um, you need people to uh, to work in the tourism industry and, and chefs and, and waiters and, and all that kind of stuff. The restaurants in the in the town aren't the best, and hotels aren't the motels aren't the best. So why don't we take uh, one of the old pubs, these beautiful Federation style buildings uh, with large balconies? They're beautiful. So why don't we take one of them and turn it into a training training." Uh, pub training hotel training restaurant type thing it'll be a destination um, place for you know for, for tourists to eat at but also we'd train the young kids or anyone who wants to retrain as an adult getting out of the mining game could could do a course there or an apprenticeship or something so that that started gaining momentum um, with some of the local authorities and and the western australian state uh, government agencies like the the southwest development commission and so we were just pitching to get some private investment uh, for that um, up until recently, which the government would back dollar for dollar. Um, it's a really great initiative um, that they've got going right. on there. So that's something we'd love to pick up on again when uh, things, when the time's right. So, yeah, that was, there are a couple of things we've been working on. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds like you're not sitting on your hands, just enjoying what you've got. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, what's that? That's a career spanning, what, 20, uh, 25 20 years? I think 29 years this year, is it? Right. Yeah. So you yeah. must have uh, some regrets in that time. What's the, the biggest regret that you've had? I don't know. Um, probably probably no, no, no serious regrets, no, heart, no strong heartfelt regrets really. Just, uh, you know, probably take things at a better – probably would have always taken things at a, at a better pace. I always uh, work at a fast pace. I guess that's inherent as for a chef to do. Um, but, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, maybe, maybe working at a, at a slower, more considerate pace, um, is the only thing I can really regret. You know, you could probably get better results when you think things out further and slower, but, you know, I guess, you know, spending 29 years as a chef, um, you just have this tendency to, to push through thinking as quick as you can, because that's just what you have to do on a daily basis. So yeah, no real regrets, but maybe just could have done things slower. Right. Got you. And and kind of biggest lessons that you've learned along the way? Yeah, I think, you know, going into business and, and just thinking you can you, you can just trust your friends and things like that and, and do it without um, putting the proper proper um, measures in place. Um, we again, you know, I think doing things uh, in a in a in a smarter way, smarter, slower, more considerate way. So, you know, yeah, that that's that's the that was the biggest lesson for me you know uh the whole kurabuta uh situation where we we built this great great little company it was starting to emerge and um it turned out that uh things were happening behind my back and um we didn't have the right measures in place to control that you know shareholders agreements and that should be really well put out as opposed to um you know just taking something you can print off the internet uh, you know so yeah that that's something that could have been done better for sure right got you 
who do you at this point in your your career who do you look to for mentorship uh, i i've always sort of really liked um danny meyer uh union square yeah. hospitality in in um group in new york uh and and just re- recently reread um his one of his books and um i i just reckon he's um yeah he's he's the he's the man who's who's really built it up from 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 nothing he's built that in enormous company and he's such a positive uh influence on people um he does things he seems to do things right as well um and he's highly yeah. successful of course so yeah i don't know I, I look towards him i keep an eye on what he does and um recently met um one of his guys who heads up Shake Shack um, in this in this region, um, who comes to Freak Scene as it happens to dine, and I said, "Look, you've got to bring Danny in with you one time. I really want to meet him. <laughs> that'd be that'd be a dream for me." So, yeah, that's who I look to. Yeah, he's definitely a shining light for for the industry. Um, the the world needs more of them for sure. Yeah. yeah. What's the uh, the funniest thing that's ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, I mean, the amount of funny things that have that have happened over the years. It, I could probably make a make a in a book just about that, or, or a short TV series. Quite funny. <laughs> but um, one thing came to mind. You know, one of the days at uh, days at Nobu. Um, <laughs> lots of lots of funny things happened there. But um, a guy Ben who I mentioned earlier has became a really good mate of mine. Um, <laughs> he'd made these pickled walnuts and. Um, I don't know if they turned out how he wanted or not, but he spent a long time peeling them and putting them in this pickle. And anyway, he decided to quit and go and work for David Thompson when David Thompson had Nam restaurant here in London. Um, yep. So he went down there. But David um, used to come up to the Nobu kitchen once in a while and and have a chat to the guys and because we used to buy fruit through his um, – uh, Thai fruit import company, and so David was up there one day, and <laughs> one of us mentioned that Ben had made these um, walnuts, <laughs> and none of us really really enjoyed them that much. And I don't even know. I don't think Ben even got into them. It's just it's just an experiment, you know, as you do as a chef. Not they don't always work out. Yeah. And I tell you what, why don't you give them to me, and I'll sneak them onto his section back at Nam and just see what he says. And he would just wonder how the hell they got there. <laughs> So he took them down, he smuggled these walnuts under Ben's section and um, apparently the word that came out of his mouth, he just smiled and said the C word quite loudly. <laughs> um, I just always thought that was quite a funny story to be a part of. Yeah, you're right though. I mean, there, there, there must be uh, too many to mention. Um, I think probably everybody's got a book in them of, of the, the, the silly things that happen along the way. Um, but they make up you know, a massive part of day-to-day life, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's some um, through doing stuff like you know those sort of things. There's a lot of comradeship, and and I think you know you make some good friends along the way, and and they're some of the good moments you remember. And um, you know, looking looking back at that, we made a lot of good friends by um, you know we used to have this theory. You know, the the more more crap you can give a guy, the better mate he is. So um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything terrifying happened to you? Um. Don't know, terrifying. Um, just, uh, I suppose the worst thing that one of the worst things that happened to me uh, organizing an event once, uh, I completely forgot to bring an ingredient, and um, the event was being organized in London for a private home in Madrid. Um, and they'd, it was for David Beckham, it was for Victoria Beckham actually, and David Beckham had been organizing it as a surprise for Victoria. And um, right at last minute, they said, Oh, by the way, um, bring some sake, but bring the sake um, special sake cups. They love they love drinking out of those. Uh, make sure you bring everything. And I said, okay, no worries. 
and I forgot the sake and I forgot the sake cups. And I got to Madrid and oh. went, oh, my God. And I was at their house and we we're getting set up. And I, I just... I, I just went white, you know. I was like, "Oh my god, we've come all this way!" And I've even bought, I've even bought our pastry chef, and we've bought a Paco jet machine with us so that the ice cream's perfect. And I can't believe I've got, I was terrified. And I called a guy that I, a tuna supplier who I'd met a few months earlier, and who happened to live in Madrid. And I said, "I don't suppose you know anyone." This is on a Sunday night or something as well. That has uh, a Japanese restaurant that can get me sake and sake cups. And this guy was just—he was so relaxed about it. He just said. Scott, no problem. I call you back. He called me back. He said, "What's the address? I've got the stuff. I've got the stuff for you." And he magically called someone and brought me sake to the gates of uh, Beckham's house um, and sake cups. <laughs> so I had my butt saved that time. Yeah, well, I mean that that kind of sums up um, the industry in a in a story, to be honest. Because I mean, it's just full of out of depth moments that um, that that people respond to and and kind of get back in their depths with. Um, yeah. There's always a problem to be solved. Always stuff um, that you know that, that comes up that you just you were the best planning in the world. You can't you can't plan for, um, and I think it, it creates an industry full of problem solvers. Definitely does, and I think nine times out of ten, people are just uh, are raring to jump in and help too. You know, um, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, Terrifying leads us on nicely to to stupid. What's uh, the 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 most stupid thing you've done? <laughs> God, how long have you got? Um, yeah, another book is it? <laughs> another book. God, have you read books forever here? Um, yeah. Stupid thing I've done. Don't know. I should. I, I I've probably got so many that um I can't remember them. Uh, yeah, I, I off the top of my head I can't think. But there's bound to be uh, someone listening to this and goes, "I've got something stupid that you've done." Um, <laughs> ready to tell me? Yeah, but that, I mean, the the thing for me about uh, uh, stupidity—I mean, it's a really strong word—but in actual fact, there's um, that's the the stuff where you get the best learning from, right? I mean, it's um, you've got to make mistakes, you've got to get past that, and um, and look, you you know, you would probably look back on every single one of your your stupid in inverted commas mistakes and and think you know either laugh at it now or or look at the learning that that took place through that process yeah absolutely that you know for, for all the for the madness and the silly things that have happened um i'm pretty grateful for the lesson that's for sure yeah what's um you've mentioned that you you look to, to danny meyer for inspiration in books who else do you what else do you read um the last book i finished i'm reading a couple of books at the moment um but uh, and one of them is called spontaneous healing by andrew uh, Vale, um, really interesting book on um, health and, and and diet and that. But uh, the last really good book I read was by Scott Jurek, who's an ultra runner. Um, it's called uh, what's it called? Eat and Run. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very simple title, but it goes on about his career um, as a how he becomes an ultra runner, but um, how he at one stage converts from uh, regular diet to veganism, and how he maintained becoming you know maintaining being the world's best ultra runner. Uh, with switching his diet to veganism, and he he did that so successfully. Um, that book is f- so full of inspiration um, and and some cool little recipes in there as well, vegan recipes. Um, I'm I'm right. not vegan. I'm a pescatarian really nowadays, but um, I quite often cook vegan meals and really really enjoy them. And I, I love the challenge of cooking that way. But he um, he presents it. He presents veganism and ultra running and and endurance 
uh, in such an incredible way. So yeah, if anyone gets a chance, read uh, Eat and Run by Scott Jurek. Noted. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds great actually. But you, you had a little whimsical moment with running, didn't you, back in the early days? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to run again now. <laughs> I keep getting injuries, but um, I, I used to. I was in the state team, the West Australian t- state team, twice when I was a teenager uh, for cross country running. I think I was the state champion one of one of those years. I can't really remember. Um, and then I'd, I'd run, I'd race track. So in the state, I was um, usually second, first or second for fifteen hundred and eight hundred um, uh, and three thousand. And then uh, cross country, I, I was, I think I was sixth or seventh in Australia at one stage, something like that. Yeah, I was pretty fast. <laughs> I was pretty fast. I think I was, I was the fastest person in my town at one stage. And I remember going to cross country races on Sundays and, and adults going, that little bastard, look at him. <laughs> and they couldn't catch me. Uh, so I was pretty stoked with that. But I've been getting into it recently and um, just you know, get this sort of nagging hip in, hip um, complaint once in a while. So I've taken a couple of days off at the moment, but um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the wrong side of forty, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, a back ailment um, now that restricts um, certain movements. So um, I've been um, I've been taking part in the the Joe Wicks PE sessions that he's been doing through this um, this period that we're in at the moment. Um, cool. and it um, wasn't until I started doing that that I realized just how out of touch I was with, with my own body. Um, yeah, it's that creeps up on you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the, uh, yeah, you've got to respect it when you when you get the wrong side of 40, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. Um, great, okay. Um, what would you say to somebody who was considering a career in hospitality? Well, um, I'd say go for it. You know, you, you've got to be, you've got to be ready for um, uh, the highs and the and the lows as well. There's some great highs from it because you know you get instant recognition from guests telling you that they've had a great meal. You know, most for the most part, and um, and the yeah. buzz of service that that really leaves you on a natural high because you finish um, cooking all those meals and you at the end of it you sort of uh, feel feel really on top of the world. And but you've got to be prepared. Be prepared for the tough times, the days where it doesn't work out, all the moments where you're coming up to 15 hours and you're starving and you think is this worth it anymore? All the tough times where, where someone's um, annoyed with you and, and, and giving you um, constructive criticism of by about, I mean, like yelling at you because um, it happens. There's high tensions in kitchens and people just need to um, just you go, go into it with a thick skin. If you've got a thick skin and you can um, remain humble and, and listen, then you're going to be good at hospitality. I think you're going to be uh, good at cooking um, because you need, you need those, those aspects. I think, um, you know, when, when people come into it and they want to sort of create Instagram dishes uh, prematurely, you know, beautiful looking food, we can all make something look beautiful on a plate, I think. But making it taste good day after day, cover after cover, that takes, you know, resilience and stamina as well. So go into it. If you if you think that's what you love, give it a shot. Give it your best shot. But, you know, just, just be prepared for a fair few lows as well as the highs. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd add to that as well that, that you've got to be prepared to learn uh, I think that that's effectively what you just said there in terms of the the, the plate. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm nothing but a domesticated chef. I, I I love to get my head into what I classify as elite cookbooks, um, and take great pride in in producing food for my uh, mates and things like that. That that looks great, but does it always taste great? No. Um, but then when you're doing that for a a professional uh, perspective, when you know that's effectively your job. 
um, you've really got to take the time to learn. Uh, and it doesn't just come with a click of the fingers. No way. I mean, I'm doing, you know, like I said, this is tw- my 29th year. And God, I've, sometimes I look at um, different aspects of cooking or aspects of, um, you know, food science or whatever and think, geez, I'm scratching the surface still. It's just this endless thing. So, um, yeah, just, just be just be patient with it as well, I suppose, is the other thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, if uh, people want to get in touch with you to, to chew the fat, um, where can they look you up? Our usual places, I suppose. Um, um, most people try and get in touch via Instagram, um, message, message on there or, or Twitter or something like that. Um, yeah, it's probably the best thing to do. Yeah. I do love your Instagram page. It is... Um, full of vibrancy i think kind of you've really taken the brand and you you deliver the brand in the um uh, in your instagram message for sure yeah there's um just as many rock and roll shots of um uh, bands or gigs or um you know me standing with jimmy page when he came in for dinner or something like that i like to chuck that one in there because he's a bit of a legend <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah it's just as much rock and roll as food i suppose excellent well it's been a pleasure to chat i really appreciate your time likewise and um well we'll talk again soon thanks very much scott you're welcome thanks well a big thank you to scott for coming on to share his story if you haven't yet made it to freak scene then get it on your post lockdown to-do list just simply stunning food don't forget we'll be launching a new episode every wednesday but in the meantime we'd love for you to subscribe to the show and give us a like and a share on any of the usual social channels see you next time